We've been working our way through this. If you want to get to Romans chapter 3, that's where we're going to get today. And uh, some of you, if you currently have kids or remember having kids or have grandkids, remember the time of bedtime. Bedtime. Bedtime uh, is often a time where parents and grandparents are very anxious for it to happen and to happen quickly and for them to stay there and not come out because you're tired and you're ready for your evening time or bed yourself. And it's often the time when kids start pulling out some of their best moves. Fortunately, we've sent the younger kids downstairs already. But there is the bedtime stall. Anybody experience the bedtime stall, right? It's the time when they ask those questions. Dad, where did the Bible come from? You're like, ah, you have to go to sleep now, right? Fell from heaven. Uh, And you're in that debate. Should I actually explain this to them because it's a good question or is it the stall, right? And there's, there's the usual, I need to go to the bathroom, again. I need water again. I don't feel good again. And they're just kind of delaying it. Tell me a story again. My kids will often try the, dad, tell us a story when you were a kid. I'm like, I, I don't remember. I need a reason to remember. I can't just remember a story. And, and so they're stalling. They're not, it's not really that they want to know, right? And can you kind of tell? I can tell when it switches from a real question to a stall. My kids went through a phase where it was all about natural disasters. Dad, if Mount Baker blows, could we get out of here in time? And you're like, do I really answer this question? We live on Mount Baker Highway. If the mountain goes, you you don't really answer that. If the place is on fire, can I get out? Yes, yes, you can get out. You'll be fine, right? But there's that moment of stall. They want to ask some question, or they ask ridiculous questions. Could I get enough Legos to build an actual train? No, no, you can't. What about Legoland? Do they have enough Legos? Probably they do. I don't know, right? They're stall. They're stall questions. They're not really interested. They just want to stall. They just want to see how long they can keep awake. And you're just kind of at the end. So are they real questions or are they stalling? And so today we're going to look at this first part of chapter 3 And we're going to see something similar. There's some real questions answered. And then are there some stalling questions? Or we're going to see even worse, not even stalling questions. Questions that are meant to distract, distort, discredit, things like that. So we're going to see this idea of what's a real question where you really want to know the answer, you really need to know the answer, and what's a question that's a stall or something different. So I won't review a lot of chapter 2, other than what we were seeing in chapter 2 was Paul was challenging external religion. He was challenging the Jewish people, of whom Paul is one. He was saying external religion without heartfelt obedience falls short. And so it it wasn't Paul... um, being anti-Jewish or anything, I very much think the, the challenge Paul poses was his own challenge in his life as he was a Pharisee moving towards Christ. And now as he travels the world, he's speaking, he goes first to Jewish synagogues to speak to his own people, and he's challenging them. So the things he's offering here, I think, are his own questions, his own challenges, and the challenges he gets as he travels. And so he's been telling them in chapter 2, your external religion 
The acts of having the law. We talked about that last week. Having and knowing the law and having Jewish circumcision without obedience didn't do anything. Right? They had the law. They knew the law, but they didn't practice it. They taught it. They explained it, but they didn't actually do it. And they were also relying on the sign of circumcision. That covers us, but they didn't actually obey God. And Paul was challenging them, saying, look, if you're not really going to obey, if you're not really going to keep the law, it really doesn't do you any good. And so today we're going to see some questions. And some of them are going to be real questions. And some of them, I think, are going to be something else, where there are challenges, but they're actually not in a, in a sincere way. So here's what we're going to see today. That God's found in a sincere search. If you really want to know, if you're really questing, if you're really trying to understand, you'll find God. But he sees through dishonest debates. And we're going to see what that looks like to throw something out, to lob something out where you're just trying to debate, you're just trying to distract. You actually don't want to know the answer. And so we're going to see that happen here in this passage. So let's go, let's start back at Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, just so we get a little feel of the, the conversation as it moves to chapter 2. So Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29, this is where we left off. He said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, right? This is what he's saying. It's not external. It's not having the law. It's not having circumcision. What is 29? But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So he just said, listen, it matters what you believe. It matters your heart towards God, not just having the law, not just having circumcision, but that you internally obey and trust and follow. He's just made that challenge to them uh, in this conversation. So then we flip over to chapter 3, and we're going to see a series of questions lobbed. So chapter 3, verse 1. It says, then, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just? All right, that's what we're going to cover today. So again, we're going to say that God's found in a sincere search but sees through dishonest debates. And so we're going to see a transition from the sincere search to a dishonest debate as we move through. So let's look at the sincere search. I think the first four verses are good, 
sincere, honest questions worth asking and answering. Okay, and so remember, he's continuing in this dialogue style where he's offering an objection or a question and then answering it, but he's posing real ones that he's either he had or he encounters along the way. He's sort of offering the objection and then answering it as he goes along. So the first one, he says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Have you ever heard of this expression? That you're cutting off the branch that you're sitting on? Have you ever heard of that? Have you ever visualized that? Have you ever seen somebody in your yard and you're like, I don't think you want to cut that one. Your ladder's on it, right? That's a little bit like what's going on here, right? Paul himself is Jewish. He just made this whole argument all through chapter 2 about it's not the law that saves you. It's not having the law. It's not teaching the law. It's not having circumcision. You need to actually follow. And, and I think there's almost an incredulous question. Well, then what's the point anyways? I mean, why bother with this? I think that's a reasonable question. Like what, you, just, you just cut the whole branch off. Why did God bother calling the Jews? Why did God pick Abraham then? Why did he give Moses the law? What was the circumcision all about? Why did he lead us out of... You just basically gave everything away. You just basically said in chapter 2 that you can uh, be a Jew inwardly and you can function that way. So what is the point then? That's actually a really good question. Why why bother being circumcised? And why do we have all this Old Testament if you're just going to say it's about your heart and obedience? That's a good question. So he gives a good answer. Much in every way. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So what he does here, he acts like he's going to start a list, but then he never gets beyond number one. You know, if you you have ever sidetracked someone, right? So first of all, then there's argument. He never comes back to second of all and third of all. He just doesn't get back to it. But he says the first thing is that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles, the sayings, the words of God. He says, first of all, you need to know, what was the advantage? Well, you were given the words of God. This is referenced a lot of times. I'll show you one here in Deuteronomy, which is Moses retelling or bringing the next generation up to speed on God's law as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And uh, look at what, listen to the words it says. This is Moses talking to, to the Israelites, to the Jews. He says, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? This amazing passage there, he's saying, look, you have been favored. And God chose you and he gave you this law and organized some of the laws for justice and fairness. And tr- it, it was unheard of in the nations around. They were, it was more like pirate rule back then. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I can conquer you, it's mine. And you see God put together this people with laws for justice and righteousness. 
And he's, and he's saying, that's going to stand out. These other nations are going to be violent and aggressive and worshiping you know, pagan and demonic deities, but you have God actually choosing you and speaking to you and talking about what makes you a righteous people, what makes you a righteous God, uh, following. So he's saying, that's a huge advantage. And we've seen a contrast with the Gentiles, which means all the other people groups. We've seen it in this, in this um, study in Romans. Okay, so the Jews had the very words of God given to Moses, given to them directly, written down over the centuries. But look what the other peoples have had. We saw this in Romans chapter 1. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So that was, he's saying, all people should know that God is there, they should honor him as God, and be thankful based on creation. But notice here, it's invisible attributes. Right? All the other nations had to figure out that God is there based on creation, based on the power, based on what they've seen. And he's saying, but you, children of Abraham, descendants, you Jews, you actually had God show up and meet you on a mountain and give you a law, and follow you along, and then send prophets to you to remind you of that law, you've had a huge advantage, right? The Gentile groups haven't had any of that. They've had to figure out that God is there, but they haven't had that advantage. So that's the first thing he's saying. Listen, God has given you direct revelation through his meeting with you, through speaking through Moses and the prophets, and they've written it down, and you've preserved it to this day, and you're still reading it, where all the other nations haven't had that. That's a huge advantage when God is self-disclosing himself. So, that was a good question, right? That was a real question. What is the point? Well, look, God's chosen you. God has been speaking to you. You have an advantage in being able to follow him. But you still actually have to follow him. You still actually have to obey. But all the other people groups did not get that advantage. So that was the first one. So the next question, well, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? That's a good next question. So wait, you're saying God gave us the law and he spoke to us directly, but we blew it. We blew it, right? And Paul's been alleging that. We've blown it over the years. They know it. So if we weren't faithful to God and we didn't actually keep the law, does that mess up God's faithfulness to us? Does that undo something? It's a good question. And here it introduces a phrase that we're going to see throughout the book of Romans. By no means. There's a lot of different funny renderings of this. No way, no how. It's not going to happen. When your kid asks for a hundred bucks, what do you tell them? I don't know what you, maybe you tell me to get a job. What do you tell me? You're like, I'm not doing that. Can I stay up all night and watch video games? Uh, no, actually you cannot. You must go to bed. Whatever that phrase is, when there's absolutely no way you're going to answer in the affirmative, that's what you can read in right here. By no means. There is no way, right? There is not going to happen over my dead body, right? Whatever the phrase is, when you're emphatically denying that this is not going to happen in any human way, that's what he says right here. That's what that, and we're going to see it over and over. It's translated by no means here. It's kind of nice and easy going, but it's, it's a very strong negative. 
So their question was, well, if we've blown it and we've been unfaithful, does that mean God, we've ruined God somehow? Does it mean our faithlessness is, does it, and he's like, you know what, no. It's absolutely not possible that you could take anything away from God. He says, let God be true, though every one of you were a liar. As it is written, though you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. If you blow it, it doesn't take anything away from God. If you don't tell the truth, it doesn't make God any less who he is. And he gives this quote here that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. It's very interesting that this quote was given. This is from Psalm 51. This is the psalm that David writes after he committed adultery and then arranged for the murder of the woman's husband that he committed adultery with. And he's called out on it. And God sends a, the prophet to speak with him. And he's called out on it. And when he, he confesses and repents, he writes Psalm 51. And so this is what he says in there. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So he's, very, he's owning it. He says, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words. There's the quote, by the way. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So he's making this case. He's saying, look, when we fail and we come before God, it doesn't mean God's any less faithful. In fact, it actually proves God to be more true, right? That you're justified. When you said this is sin and don't do it, and then I do it, and then I'm judged for it, you're actually justified in saying it's sin. It's demonstrating truth. It's demonstrating righteousness. He's saying, I'm a sinner. We're sinners. You're righteous in your judgment. No amount of failure on our part takes anything away from God. We can't bring God down. So even if God gave the law, and even if he passed it down, and even we knew everything was righteous and we didn't do any of it, it doesn't take anything away from God. He is still righteous. He's proved righteous. So I think those first two were legitimate, worthy questions. Paul in this sort of made-up dialogue. These are worthy questions. What was the point of even being a Jew then? Well, he starts one. And can we, can we mess up God? No, actually, you can't. You can't do anything to make God violate himself or be any less than he is. Those are good, sincere questions that you might encounter, that you might have had. Maybe you have other ones, but those are sincere. What's the real answer to this? Now, the passage turns to what I'm calling a dishonest debate. I don't really want to know the answer. Maybe you've heard of this expression. That's a red herring. You ever heard of that? That's a red herring. And, well, what is that talking about? Right? There's these little silvery fish. I call them bait. Some people eat them. But whatever. When you uh, smoke them, they go from silver to red. But the real point is not the little fish. It's a literary or a storytelling device that is a fact an idea or a subject that takes people's attention away from the central point being considered. That's called a red herring. When they introduce something into the storyline that uh, 
takes your attention. You think, well, this has got to be it. This has got to be it. It was meant to distract you all along. They gave the classic, if you're a Harry Potter person, Snipe, a Snape, all along. Doesn't he seem bad? Isn't he the bad guy? He's a red herring. So if I ruined it for you, I'm sorry. But that's what a red herring is, where you're introducing an argument, you're introducing something, and you actually don't really want the answer. You're actually trying to go down a different road. You have a different purpose, and that's what we see in verses 5 through 8. It's a red herring. This is not an honest debate. So here we go. He's just said, can we ruin God? Can our unfaithfulness lessen it? No, we can't. So then the next question. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God... What shall we say? Right? So we saying if we mess up and it shows that God is more righteous, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I'm saying, wait, if it makes God look good when we're judged under his righteous rules, then that's not fair. You ever heard that one? That's not fair. He can't inflict wrath on us if what we do makes him look better. And here's the giveaway for me. I speak in a human way. Paul's saying, you know, we're not really talking about real theological questions anymore. You're, we're just, we're going downhill. Here we go again. By no means. No way. There's no way that if God responds to you that that's unfair and he's unrighteous. He says, no way. For how then could God judge the world? If God is unrighteous in any way, if God is imperfect in any way, then he cannot be the perfect judge because he too would be found a sinner. And he's saying, that's not the case. So it keeps going down. But... If through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned a sinner? If I lie and I make God look better, then why is it a problem? Because I'm actually making God look better. And then here we go, well, why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So that's where the argument goes. Well, look, wait a minute, you're saying... That if I'm unrighteous and God judges me, he looks more righteous. Well, if I do a whole lot more unrighteous and a lot more lies, he's going to look really, really good. So why is he punishing me when in the end I'm making him look good? And Paul doesn't even, he's like, you know what? You actually deserve to be judged. I'm not even going to entertain that anymore. That's a dishonest debate. That is a red herring. You're not really interested anymore. You're just throwing stuff out there. Right? And that comes up again in chapter 6. Right? If, if God is so gracious, shouldn't I make a whole big mess of sin so I can get a whole lot more of God's grace? And he's like, you know what, no, no. You're misunderstanding the whole point. And that's what I think is going on here. It's a, it's a dishonest debate. It started with good questions. Well, what's the point of the Jews then? And can we nullify God anyway? No, you can't. And then it just turns to dishonest debates of, well, why don't we do a whole lot of evil so that God looks really good, and doesn't that make more sense? No, no, that actually does not make more sense. Why do we do that? Why are they thrown out there? What are some, here's some, that, and I think this happens all the time. If someone is exploring their faith or wanting to jettison their faith, they can find these red herrings or find these, and they're not an honest question. I'll just give you some that you, maybe you had, and they, they don't really want to know the answer. Here's one that happens. The days of creation. Are they 24-hour periods or are they longer? You read it. There was evening and there was morning the first day. Well, it sounds like 24 hours to me. But then they'll say, but how in the world could it be 24 hours if Adam names all the animals? That would take forever. I mean, you could spend from now to forever watching Discovery Channel and not get to end all the animals. 
So how? And so it's thrown out. Do you really want that answer? Do you, is, or is it a, see, it doesn't make sense. I don't have to pay attention. Another one is, the New Testament documents were corrupted by the church. Didn't you see the Tom Hanks movie? Have you looked that up? Do you know that? Do you know that Homer wrote the Odyssey? Do you know that? How do you know? What, do you, what is the source of the New Te- Testament documents? Have you looked? Have they been corrupted? How are they corrupted? What's, here's the point. I think those are thrown out to keep God at bay. Look, what you're saying doesn't make sense, so I don't have to listen to you. I think that's what was happening there. Look, what you're saying is if I can make a whole big mess and then God looks better, then shouldn't that actually work out? You know what? You don't really want the answer. You're just trying to put, keep God at bay. Look, you don't make sense. Your word doesn't make sense. I don't have to think about you. I don't have to acknowledge you. I don't have to acknowledge the real issues of my own life and death. Will I really stand before God or will I not? It doesn't matter how long Adam took to name the animals when you're standing before God. It just won't be relevant. It just won't come up. Right? He's going to talk about you and your life and your sin, and your need for salvation, and those kind of conversations, I don't think are honest. I think there are very important, honest, and questions that should be asked, and then I think there's a kind of question in a debate where you're just kind of saying, eh, eh, eh. and we see that here, where you're saying, you know, I don't really want to deal with you, God, so I'm going to throw out something ridiculous, therefore I feel better not paying attention. So what I want to make sure is we see the difference between good questions. I want you to ask good questions. I want everyone to ask good questions of their faith, of the scriptures, and that you really want to know. And, I, and so don't hear this as a don't ask questions, just to accept it. There were some real questions here, and I want to encourage you to ask and answer real questions. And then there are questions that are not real questions. And so this whole conversation that's out there right now is about deconstructing your faith and a lot of Kids and students have grown up in churches deconstruct. They take it apart, and this is this doesn't make sense, and this doesn't make sense. And so Tim Keller wrote a, a great article called "Reconstructing Faith: Christianity in a New World," and he actually argues there's some really good times for you to deconstruct your faith with good questions, so that you rebuild it stronger, so that you don't just blindly accept what someone else told you, but you really wrestle it down for yourself. See, that's good. You actually come onto the other side with a stronger faith. And I think most kids who grow up in church, that is a part of it, where they finally go, I can't believe this because mom and dad said it, because grandma told me, I need to find out. And that's a deconstruction and a reconstruction to a personal, deeper, authentic faith. He's saying, that's good. So here's what he says. He says, I believe that today more Christians than ever will be going through the process of rethinking their faith. One of the main reasons is that, through media and the internet, there are no longer any sheltered enclaves where people can grow up taking the Christian faith for granted, believing it because everyone else they know believes it. It used to be you could come from a town and a community where everyone believes and you ask no questions. The second you turn on your phone, you're not in that anymore. All the questions are there. So he's saying, this is going to be happening on an increasing level. But the key to assuring that this rethinking will result in strengthened faith rather than lost faith is that we must learn to not only closely examine the foundations of our Christianity, but also to just as closely examine 
the cultural narratives that present themselves as the alternatives to Christian faith. You have to, you have to challenge everything. You can't be selective. For example, many deconstructed ex-Christians testify that Christianity did not let them be true to themselves. But as they go on to explain their new life without religious faith, it is obvious that while they have questioned their Christian beliefs, they have not at all questioned their new beliefs. And so one set of naive, unexamined beliefs has been jettisoned for another set just as unconsidered. Christians in our cultural moment will have to rethink their faith, but at the same time they must learn to doubt their doubts. They must deconstruct not only their tacit, mistaken beliefs and their secondary beliefs that pose as primary, but also, just as importantly, the cultural narratives that are offered as the alternatives to Christian faith. I think he said that so well. That whole idea that if you're going to question one thing, you need to apply equal rigor. Okay, I'm doubting this about the faith, and I'm doubting this about Jesus' resurrection. I'm doubting this about the historical reliability of the New Testament. Okay, are you taking that same level of doubt to whatever else you're turning to? And a lot of times the answer is no, because it's dishonest. It's an attempt to say, I want to get away from God. I want to get away from accountability. I want to get away from its hold over me. Therefore, I'm going to pose these things and throw them out. Say, see, you can't mess with me. And okay, Paul ends like, you know what? You're just going to get what you deserve is what he ended his. He's like, all right, fine. Okay, if you want to throw out some ridiculous thing that if we do a whole bunch of sin, we should get away with it because it makes God look better and why is he judging me in the first place? You actually don't want a real answer. And that's where he left it. And so I want to encourage, especially our students, I want you to encourage you to have a sincere search. Ask all the hard questions. Dig as deep as you can dig. Take apart things that you're going, well, is that just cultural? Is that just what Pastor Ryan thought, but can I find it in Scripture? You take that thing apart. But any other view, you need to take it apart similarly. Whatever, what else is offered to you? Will you be rigorous with that? Is it an honest search? I would commend you to an honest search. If it's not an honest search, then you're just putting up a front to get away from it. And we saw that in the passage, and Paul said, I'm just not even going to address that. If you want to live in that reality, it's not honest. But if you do, those first, he's like, yeah, there's actually good answers for these questions. So what I wanted to do, I came across these today, or this week. This could feel like, is this talking to me at all? Some of you, especially us Gentile church, are going, what is all this Jew-Gentile debate? Does this even matter? There's a ministry called Chosen People's Ministry, and they're sharing the gospel with ethnically Jewish people, showing them that Jesus is their Messiah. And so I want to show you a guy, and there's a, you can go to their website and see just tons of the stories. They're fabulous. But this guy is going to talk about external religion and can I really find God, and then what happens when you really encounter Jesus and what an honest search looked like. And I want you to see that it's actually no different than what we've just been reading in chapter 2 and chapter 3. That this guy goes on an honest search, he's evaluating religion in his own religion, and then he's going to check it out. And in fact, what you'll hear, if you go on there, you'll hear that most uh, Jewish people in this country particularly, 
in Europe as well, are told that the New Testament is an anti-Jewish document and teaches you how to persecute Jews. They don't open it. They're just told that. And many of them, you'll hear them say, they think that Jesus was Catholic because he's in all the Catholic churches, and that way he must have been Catholic. And they're stunned to learn of Jesus Jewish. And they're stunned to learn that the New Testament was written by Jews, about Jews, it just blows them away because they've never done the search. So I want to see that what we're talking about is not some far out there old time Bible talk. This is today. This is what a search looks like today. So we're just going to take a look at a guy called Mordecai, and you can be jealous of his power beard, but then listen to what he says. All right, so let's let's fire that up here. We got that. Thank you. 
concerned about you getting involved with some crazy sect and going off someplace. So I waited for months. And uh, when I finally told him, he was very skeptical. On his own, then, he started to read about Jesus as well. About a year and a half later, I told him that the fellow who wrote one of the books that he had read, that this fellow was doing a lecture in the city of New York. And he agreed to come out to hear that person. And uh, one of the most amazing moments in my life was the speaker said, would everyone here who is a Jewish believer in Jesus, would you raise your hand? I raised my hand. My father also raised his hand. And I said, I looked over, I said, ah, he didn't say would all the Jews raise their hand. Would all the Jewish believers in Jesus raise their hand? And my father looked over and said, yes, I, I heard what he said. The decision to come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah was not something that was a momentary lark. It wasn't something was a passing fan, and I could see changes in myself that I knew were not from within myself. I had kind of tapped in to a truth for our Jewish people that was very powerful. Isn't that an amazing story? So, he was on a real search, he was on a real quest, <laughs> he asked the questions, and what did he do? What did, what did he do to find it? Paul told us that in chapter 2. What was the advantage they had? They were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were entrusted with the oracles of God, and if you go in there and read them, what does it do? It points you to Jesus. And he said that in uh, Isaiah 53. Let me read some of it. This is Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So it's just this beautiful picture in the scriptures of the coming work of Jesus and the fulfilled work of Jesus. That man went on a sincere quest and he found Jesus to be the credible Messiah. And so I just commend that to you. If you have real questions about faith and the scriptures and what's it all about, ask them and seek them and seek them honestly. If your goal is just to keep God at bay, you can find a lot of arguments, you can find a lot of things, but are they an honest search for the truth? Are you equally applying those rigorous, rigorous questions to anything else that's offered as a truth claim? Or is your goal to keep God at bay? I encourage you not to keep God at bay. He loves you. He's died for you. He wants 
to be in relationship with you. And he will show himself to you in the honest search. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the work you've done in that man's heart and in many of our hearts, that at the end of the day, you are there and you are available to us. And if we're really looking, we will find you. We will find you in truth and reality. We'll find what you did at the cross and realize our need for you. Lord, I just pray for any who are asking hard questions, that they'd ask them and find those. And I pray for those whose goal is to keep you away, that you might soften them. You might let them see just how much you've done for them, how much you love them. You bring them back. We know many are even represented here, beloved ones, beloved kids, beloved siblings that are in a deconstruction mode. But would you let them come down to a bedrock truth of you and rebuild their life on you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.